You are now listening to the December 1st broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have the attributes of God, walking our talk, and grace upon grace. First, let's begin with the attributes of God. This program will examine how we can learn about who God is, His character, and His nature by discovering His attributes. everyone, and welcome to another edition of The Attributes of God. I am your host, Susan Holtgrew. So far in our series, we have studied seven incommunicable attributes of God. Let's review these seven that only God alone has. We have learned about the Trinity, oneness of God, His transcendence and infiniteness, He is eternal and creator, and of course, the omnis, omnipresent or omnipresent, omnipotent, and the omniscience of God. Today, we are going to learn about God being immutable. It means that God never changes. He is always the same. The God of Adam and Eve is our God today. The God of Noah is our God today. And the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is our God today. All of the promises that he has made throughout the Old Testament holds true for us today. No matter what happens to us or to our surroundings, we can depend on God, our firm foundation, to always remain the same. We can trust that he will always be consistent and unchanged. God's nature is reliable and trustworthy. As A.W. Pink says in his book, The Attributes of God, God is perpetually the same, subject to no change in his being, attributes, or determinations. Therefore, God is compared to a rock, which remains immovable. When the entire ocean surrounding it is continually changing, even so, though all creatures are subject to change, God is immutable. Because God has no beginning and no ending, he can know no change. He is everlastingly the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting of shadow. Let's look at a few passages in the Bible describing God as a rock. First, we will look at the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 3 and 4. Moses said, For I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are just, a God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Throughout chapter 32, Moses referred to God as a rock five times. Moses certainly understood the immovable, unchanging God. Now let's look at a psalm from David, chapter 18, verse 2. David writes, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. 
And finally, David's last song in 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 2 and 3. David said, The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, The Rock of Israel spoke to me, He who rules over men righteously, who rules in the fear of God. Our God is our rock that never moves, never changes, who was and is and is to come. How comforting it is to know that no matter how much our world changes or how much we change as we get older, God is still the same. His promises still hold true for us today. As we close our program, I would like you to think about how God's immutability is a comfort to you. Write your thoughts down and bring them before God in prayer and talk with Him about what you wrote. Thank you for joining me today, and I look forward to speaking with you again next week. God bless you. Goodbye.
Coming up next is the podcast series, Walking Our Talk. We will be studying the book, Learning How to Trust Again, by Dr. Ed Delf and Alan and Polly Heller. Through true life stories and God's Word, you will learn how to regain your emotional, physical, and spiritual well-being, how to rebuild broken relationships, and you will learn five keys to regaining your trust. Now let's hear from Alan and Polly Heller and Dr. Ed Delf and begin our study on how we can learn how to trust God and others. Welcome to Walking Our Talk with Alan Heller. I'm Dustin Daniels. Well, I hope you had your pen ready last week as Dr. Ed Delf, he gave us a rapid fire recap from all those dragon egg lessons on the subject of trust those were great, weren't they? They, they were quick, bite-sized statements that I, I hope gave you an aha moment or two. I know they did me when it comes to all the different man-made idols in our life. And this week, we're going to press into those lessons with the discovery process of the birth and the development of an idol, or what the authors call dragon eggs. So in this podcast, we're going to press into those And we're going to discuss, number one, those dreaded blind spots that we all have. Number two, one of the biggest problems in keeping things hidden. Number three, we're going to discuss real guilt versus false guilt. And all this material 
that we're going to be discussing today comes from a book titled Learning How to Trust. Alan and Polly Heller, along with Dr. Ed Delph, are the authors of this book. And this podcast is simply an in-depth conversation so that you can apply these principles to your own life. For more information on the book and different resources, you can visit walkandtalk.org. And later in the show, I'll also share with you how you can register for a webinar to where you can ask your own questions to Alan himself. But first, let's get started with today's podcast of Walking Our Talk. The first thing that we want to do that you lay out in the book is to actually identify what these things are. Can you say more? Right. What's funny is Polly is much better at this than me, (laughs) but she can identify my dragon eggs. She can identify her dragon eggs. But, you know, I'm good at identifying other people's dragon eggs. I think in the book, we give a little exercise to have you actually say, you know, write out what do you think your dragon egg is. And so... You'd have to reflect a little bit and ask yourself, what is something that I have, I thought I had control over, but now it's controlling me. So one that sometimes happens in my life might be, I love to relax by watching sports. And there's nothing wrong with sports. Center. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Basketball, football. I know my wife, for some reason, doesn't want to sit there and and do all that. But there are times where I will, like, overdo it. And so that becomes a little, you know, first it starts to be relaxing, and then it starts to be not – putting her first and then it's a dragon egg and I need to address that and although that's a, a small one maybe those little foxes spoil the vine is what the Song of Solomon says and so I have to be aware first of all what is it that I have started to do that I think it might be a blind spot I think I'm doing fine and she goes I would appreciate if you'd look at me. So that's a really good question, Alan. Is it someone else like our spouse that has to identify those things? Or is it us listening to the Holy Spirit going, hey, you know. Well, the more spiritual thing, Dustin, is for (laughs) us to listen to the Holy Spirit. But unfortunately, he's given me a wife that does better than the Holy Spirit sometimes. What do you think, Polly? I think a lot of our dragon eggs start when we're little. Mm -hmm. And we get praised for something or we receive pleasure from something, as you're saying, with watching sports. And in and of itself, it's not a bad thing initially, but when it starts to take over, when it turns into a lie, when it becomes uncontrollable in our lives, then it has hatched and become a dragon. So it's not necessarily, obviously watching ESPN is not a sin, but maybe spending hours upon hours and it becomes that habit. So it's not necessarily a sin is what I hear you saying. Well, right. Like for me, I was always really smart in terms of school. Like I picked up reading really quickly. So my value was in being smart. So 
I bring home a report card with all A's, I'm smart, I get lots of praise for that, and that becomes my value. That, that's what gives me value. Well, it's really your identity is what it starts to become. Right, but then I tell myself the people who aren't as smart as me aren't worth as much as me. Mm-hmm. Uh, my sister was not a good speller. I was a, a really good speller because I had a photographic memory practically so I remember saying to her one time well can't you just see the word in your head and then you know how to spell it and she said I look in my head and I don't see anything and so I'm with with her (laughs) so I think well there's got to be something wrong with her because she doesn't see the word inside her head so I'm worth more than she is because I can see the word and she can't I thought I could control my temper, and she couldn't control her temper. I had lots of self-discipline. She didn't have good self-discipline. So I'm more valuable than she is because I could do things that she couldn't do. So the dragon egg is when you have crossed over from something that is a natural talent or ability or a gift, but then you are you're disqualifying somebody else in that example right your your value comes from this thing that you do so well and you're devaluing the person that doesn't do that right in that particular area that's that's not for everything right so it's a little lie that i have bought into that makes me feel better about myself because not just better about myself but then it grows into more valuable than other people. And then if I start to fall short, then I'm less valuable. Now I got a C on a paper. So now I'm not as valuable as I was when I was getting straight A's. And that's a lie too. So when we identify what the dragon egg is, then you guys talk about moving into hiding dragon eggs say more on that i was just thinking of the the idea of good things taken to extremes become be harmful things right and then you enter from just receiving who you are and the way god made you and all that kind of stuff get in comparison get into performing Hmm. and uh the whole performance thing kicks in there and so you know when you start feeding that dog that dog gets bigger yeah (laughs) you know what i'm saying uh it's which dog are you feeding and so these things are tricky. They're, these, this is tricky stuff. And that's a great example, Polly, really, of something that really is a good thing. Here you have a student that's excelling and everything like that. But as she begins, that begins to take on her identity rather than Christ taking on her, her mm-hmm. identity, if I could say it that yeah, way. Yeah. Well, and so it <clears throat> kind of dispossesses that and puts this thing on the throne. And then it, you know, that dog will never stop wanting to be fed. You'll, you know, it's a... <laughs> Most dogs live in perpetual hope, okay? They're hoping they're going to be fed. And that thing is there waiting for you all the time to just feed it. And we see it in the dragon's egg story when, remember, she and the dragon are in that inside the tree. Right. And she's got to feed it all the time. She's got to pet it all the time. She's got to nurture it all the time. Mm -hmm. And and it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Right. And she was trying to hide it, but the dragon kept getting bigger, and there was fire on the walls and caretakers going, so, Amanda, what's the charred stuff on the walls here? And, I, you know, I mean, she makes excuses, and I think that's what we do. We take something, and, of course, these days, I think 
the issues of addictions are all over the place, whether it be mm -hmm. sexual, alcohol, drugs. We start just taking a drink after work just to sort of relax or whatever. Then the next thing we have two or three or four. Then we get a buzz. And I don't so think. So subtle, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. It, it I, really is. The Lord wants us to let him be the one in control mm -hmm. rather than whatever else we put there. I, I think with, uh, with women, we buy into the whole physical beauty mm -hmm. and thinner is better, long, luxurious hair is better, uh, perfect skin is better. And so if I, when I was young, had no trouble with my weight, but after two or three babies, now I've put on a few pounds, and women typically in their 40s start to gain a little bit of padding, even if they're eating and exercising and following the same types of habits that they've always done, they just, their bodies start to change. Well, now I become fearful because I'm not as beautiful or as attractive. And mm. again, my value is less than it was before when I was younger and thinner and naturally more beautiful. Well, and the, the lie is the man who, you know, is 30 pounds overweight, doesn't care, but he's judging the woman who's gaining weight and is less desirable, and pretty soon she's trying to meet up to a standard that she can't meet up to, but he's not even thinking about the standard that he's got. Well, not only that, but let's say when she was younger, she could eat two bowls of ice cream at night, and it didn't show. And now, if she just eats a spoonful of ice cream, she feels like she's gained a pound in the morning, and so she starts hiding her food. And I think right there, that's that's the point that we, we really need to, to make is, you guys, it, there's something very wrong with hiding something, mm -hmm. right? I mean, when we start to hide that bowl of ice cream or I, I start, babe, what'd you do? Did you, you know, have you been watching ESPN for, you know, the past couple of, no, I only watched, checked for 10 minutes or, mm -hmm. you know, I do have that second beer or, or whatever it is. And I start hiding something right. that is, that's the Holy Spirit telling us, hmm. Yeah. We have to, I tell people, have to too, there's, there's real guilt and false guilt. You know, mm -hmm. the conviction of the Holy Spirit, that's real guilt. And you know what? In a world that doesn't think anybody should feel guilty and everybody should get a ribbon and, because they participated, it's pretty hard to convince them that there's real guilt that you should feel. Mm -hmm. You should feel bad about this because you're hiding from the author and perfecter of your faith and the one that designed you, and you're not working according to your design and then there's false guilt which is you know the father or mother who told you I mean in my case I was told you know just try as hard as you can at school and so I bring home a C and then they go why'd you get a C and I'm going I tried as hard as I could you told me to try as hard as I could and all of a sudden I don't meet the standard then I'm just going to become a clown because mm. you know and I'll get good at gymnastics and athletics and that became my value because people would always if i could do a flip people would go oh, wow well how many flips have you done lately <laughs> I'm not seeing honey you know gymnastics is not a lifetime sport and my, my uh, self-esteem is in the toilet right now so <laughs> haven't done many so once we go from hiding which is never a good thing ed what are some of the results of that hiding we go back to the garden. We go right back to the garden. Mm, you know, here's, yeah. here's Eve and Adam. They know what to do. 
They've, they've had an encounter with God. Uh, they've got his wisdom. Um, and all of a sudden they do, because they have a choice, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Um, that choice revealed where they really were. And so what happens is after you hide something, I mean, blame shifting is the next result. Blame shifting, as we said last time, is yeah. just shame shifting. And yeah. so all of a sudden here she is naked. She was naked and unashamed. She went from naked and unashamed to naked and ashamed. And, and then the next thing you know, she's, you know, she's blaming it on the snake and he's blaming it on the woman. And we got the blame game going on. And then if you look at it, I mean, there so many things happened after the fall of man, just from, just from doing something that, you know, you kind of do, but and you know you shouldn't. But look at how this thing tur- goes from a small egg to a huge egg. We've got I'm just reading here in the first chapter 3 and 4 of Genesis. You've got the next thing is shame shifting. Then you've got guilt because they're hiding and hurling. Then they hide even more right. or they hurl. And then you've got, you got denial. Then you've got warfare. Then you've got pain. Then you've got potential domination. Then you've got toil. Then you've got alienation. They came in. They were in the garden as one. They went out as two. Um, you've got jealousy, anger, murder, inferiority, segregation, prejudice, godship problems, attempts at finding your own significance, and then uh, revenge. And I could, that's just chapter three and four of uh, Genesis. So this, that one event created this, this whole little dragon's egg. They were told not, now in, you can have all these other trees, but when you find a dragon egg, bring it to the caretaker. Mm-hmm. And she didn't, and from that, was the all of those consequences right exactly yeah I, I think it's interesting to maybe drill down into the reaction of adam and eve like you just said because that's the fourth thing here what's our reaction from our hiding we start to maybe see those consequences so what happens next so we hide i mean for them they put clothes on and god said who told you you were naked i mean it wasn't like he didn't know but they were hiding, and that's where the shame comes in. And then we start doing things that to compensate. I think what people do is they do things they never thought they would do. Many men who never thought they were going to get into an affair, that wasn't what they started doing, but they just felt less than. They felt like they were criticized at home, and this person at work is so nice They're telling me how great I am and how wonderful I am, but I have to go home to this wife who's... And so we start with that dragon egg that, well, everyone needs self-esteem and to feel purposeful and significant and loved. And so it's taking a legitimate need and having it satisfied in an illegitimate way. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that guys many times are talking about in men's groups and Uh, counseling when I talk with them is about, so what about temptation? And, you know, there's a difference, isn't there, between being tempted and doing the sin? And so the first look to the woman, you know, hey, that's a beautiful woman. Uh, The second look, that's where you have to watch out. And undressing her. I mean, I had a guy one time in counseling, he didn't realize at every stop sign when he could see a woman crossing the street or a woman in the car next to him, He was actually fantasizing and having a relationship with her. Now, that's going way beyond the bounds of beauty. Beauty is fine. But when I start to use it for my own devices, even in a marriage relationship, I can do the same thing. I can start using 
and abusing rather than giving and doing what God intended me to do with that relationship. I think for women, uh, too, that shopping is really a big one. Uh, Again, because we're so, um, I want to say visually oriented, but not not, not like, visually ordered, not like I'm visually ordered. But we notice how we look. We notice each other's hair. We notice one another's nails. We know right away if somebody got their outfit at Kohl's or if they got it at Saks Fifth Avenue. There's just something about a pair of really unique and expensive shoes or earrings or something like that. And so for me... I feel good when somebody notices what I'm wearing. And so, again... You look very nice today. Well, thank you. My husband bought me this. (laughs) (laughs) No, what a great guy. You must have a great husband. (laughs) Um, So, for me, I like to wear something that's unique, that's going to stand out from the crowd. And I like to shop because I feel better... I feel good about myself when I've bought something that I think looks good on me. And so sometimes I will go shopping just to make myself feel better. And I'll find myself sometimes driving home from someplace going, oh, I just wish I could go shopping. I just feel <laughs> I feel like driving into a mall and just going through a store and so it's a shopping. It's a comfort. And, and I've, I've been thinking about it. Again, recognizing uh, this little hatched dragon, like I feel good about myself when I'm making that purchase. But when the credit card bill arrives and I see that I've spent $250 that I don't have, then I don't feel so good. So there are consequences, some long-term consequences to a short-term uh, effect that made me feel better about myself. Well, and, and the scripture, yeah, the scripture says, sin is pleasurable for the moment, but its end leads to death. And we don't think about the death when we're in the midst of doing the temptation that led us to do something that is totally against what God would say to do. All of these things are really, we said it before, but they're wonderful servants terrible masters Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and what happens is in the beginning you're managing it in the end it's managing you Mm -hmm. and when it starts managing you that's the red light on the dashboard that says something's wrong we better do something here because we're getting out of control a little bit of leaven spoils the whole lump right these things are can become high things that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. And again, that's the whole idea. It wants to take over being the Lord of your life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's an idol. Right. An idol is an object of ardent worship. Well, in a marriage, that can really creep in if my idol is that my daddy always took really good care of me because my daddy was a businessman, my daddy made good money, my daddy showed his love by taking me shopping and buying me things, and so I always felt really secure because my daddy was a really good provider. Well, I know that my heavenly father is a good provider, but my husband and I are in a ministry together that 
over the years has not always provided financially for us in the same way that our businessmen daddies did. And so if my lie is I feel secure when my daddy is providing me with a lot of money, when our checking account is really full, then I feel secure. But when the finances aren't there, then my husband is not a good provider. My husband is not a good husband. He's not a good daddy because he's not providing financially and that can undermine a lot of things in a marriage. Believing those lies can and will undoubtedly undermine a marriage very, very quickly. And it's vital for us to make sure that we replace those lies with the truth of scripture. Because if we don't, those lies, they just seem to simmer, don't they? Simmer on low, kind of like a crock pot. And over time, they begin to boil over in all sorts of anger. The Apostle John writes in 3 John chapter 1, verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in truth. Well, next week on Walking Our Talk, we'll discuss a couple things. Number one, secrets. Oh my goodness, why we love our secrets. And number two, pleasure. And how pleasure gives us a false sense of control. Well, to learn more about Dr. Ed Delph, you can visit nationstrategy.com. And to visit Alan and Polly Heller, head over to walkandtalk.org. The Learning How to Trust book comes with a newly revised application guide, and this is really great for your family, for your church, for your small group to once again have a conversation about all things dealing with trust. And then lastly, don't forget to sign up for one of Alan's upcoming trust webinars. And once again, you can do all of that by visiting walkandtalk.org. On behalf of Alan, Holly, and Ed, thanks for listening to Walking Our Talk. We'll meet again next week. Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor David Platt of Radical. Today's topic is True Assurance of Eternal Life, based on 1 John chapter 2, verses 3-17. through 17. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David. We're living just like the world. We look just like the world. We in this gathering love this world and part of our text today, so if you look at it in verse 15, the Bible says, God is saying to us right now, do not love the world or the things in the world, period. Underline that, highlight that, star that. That's God speaking directly to us. Now knowing, as we're going to see, there's a lot of things that verse doesn't mean. It doesn't mean don't love the people of this world. We know God loves the people of this world. John 3.16, so much he gave his only son to die for them. We saw last week in 1 John 2.2, Jesus died as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. 
And it doesn't mean don't enjoy anything in the world. We know, 1 Timothy 6, God has given us all kinds of good things in the world to enjoy. Family, a good meal with friends, a, a baseball game to enjoy. So we love people in the world. We enjoy good gifts that God gives us in the world. But what John is saying, or the Bible is commanding here, is that we must not love the ways and practices of a world that is in so many ways set up against the word of God. A world that goes on day by day, such a way that it's just second nature to us, gratifying self, indulging self, entertaining self, exalting self without regard for the character or commands of God. And John is saying, the Bible is saying here, the church should look different. The church should look very different. Our schedules should look different. Our spending should look different. Our marriages should look different. Our parenting should look different. Our purity, our possessions, our love, our lives should look different. Not for the sake of being different, but because we love God more than we love this world. He says right after this, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And that's what I want you to see today. I want you to see the relationship between God's love for us and how we look at the world around us. And then John closes with this warning. Did you see it in verse, or just look at it in verse 17. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Do you hear that? Like that is an eternal warning. God is saying right now, just hear him speaking. He says, if you love this world, you will perish with this world. Don't love the world. It will destroy you. Instead, love God. Do his will and you will live forever. The choice could not be more simple in that sense. Remember, that's why John's writing this book. So we might know we have eternal life. And in this book, he's warning. So we're going to see it in the uh, verses next week right after this. That some people are professing to be Christians who are not. And this is why my heart is particularly heavy today. Because when I hear statistics like I just walked through uh, the number of professing Christians whose lives look just like the world, I just can't avoid one conclusion. Like many professing Christians are not Christians. Potentially even professing Christians in this gathering right now are not Christians. And I want to be so careful and wise in the way I say that because for, for true followers of Christ in this gathering right now, the last thing I want to do is cause you to doubt your faith. At the same time, for those of you who are deceived into thinking you are a Christian when you are not, the last thing I want to do is comfort you in your present state before God. I want to warn you with everything in me. And I see John doing both these things in this book. He is encouraging followers of Christ and he's warning those who say they're Christians but are deceived over and over again. We've already seen him say, if you say you're a Christian yet you believe this, you're deceived. If you say you're a Christian and you live like this, you're a liar. Talk about politically incorrect. To say to some, maybe many people, who say that you're a Christian, say, actually you're a liar. But if that's true, don't you want to know that? Doesn't any one of us want to know if we're deceived in some way? Especially if we're deceived about our eternity? I want to know that. I want to know the truth about my life for eternity. So I'm just operating under an assumption that you do too. So how do you know? How do you know that you have eternal life? This is the question First John is answering 
continually. And I, I don't believe this is just important for professing Christians. I know there are some, many, who are visiting with us today and you're not a Christian. Maybe you've come at the invitation of a friend. Maybe you're exploring Christianity. We want you to know that we are glad you're here. You are welcome here. And I really believe that what we're talking about here is vitally important for you as well. Because if you're really going to evaluate Christianity, then it's really important for you to know what Christianity actually is. I saw a recent news article. The headline said, Exposing America's Biggest Hypocrites, Evangelical Christians. First line of the article. It says, Christianity in America, or should I say, the single greatest cause of atheism today. Obviously, we could argue about whether that's true. But I think we'd certainly agree that many people see a disconnect between what Christians say and how Christians live and walk away wanting nothing to do with it. I'm guessing some who are even visiting have experienced that before. And on top of that, I want you to know you have eternal life. So here's what I want to do. I want us to think together for the next few minutes about false foundations for assurance of eternal life and true foundations for assurance of eternal life. What I mean by that, the Bible's saying here in 1 John over and over again, this is how you know you have eternal life. So we're going to see that over and over again today in what we're reading. These are the foundations for assurance that you have eternal life. What's interesting though is the foundations the Bible gives are very different from the foundations I see and hear so many people today standing on when they say, yeah, I know I'm a Christian. Very different. I see, I hear so many false foundations of assurance that are not mentioned in the Bible. So I'm going to start by listing some of them out and then move to the true foundations for assurance. And I, uh, obviously, I don't know uh, everybody in this gathering or what's going on in your heart and your life. I've just prayed that God would take this word and speak it to your heart and that you would be open to hear whatever God is saying to you in the next few minutes. So, false foundations for assurance. So, how do you know you're a Christian? How do you know that you have eternal life? Here's eight false foundations I hear all the time. I hear people, one, point to their religious heritage. People say, I was born a Christian. I grew up in a Christian home. The Bible never teaches that where you were born or where you grew up is any guarantee of eternal life. Second, others point to church involvement. I talk to a ton of people who say, yeah, I go to church every once in a while or every week even. And while gathering with the church is an essential part of following Christ, the Bible never says that going to church by itself is any basis for assurance in eternity. You can go to church every single Sunday of your life and not have eternal life. People say, I live a moral lifestyle. I'm a good person. I'm kind, honest, generous, a lot more than a lot of people in the world. Yet the Bible clearly teaches that a moral lifestyle doesn't assure anyone eternal life. Just ask the Pharisees, the great law keepers, and their conversations with Jesus all throughout the Bible. People point to intellectual knowledge. People will say, I know that I have eternal life because I believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, so I know I'm a Christian. When actually that merely puts you on the same plane as the devil himself. The devil believes Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. He does not have eternal life. That's no assurance for eternal life. 
People point to active ministry. Look at all I do in the church or for the church or for others and this way or that way. As soon as you hear that, think Jesus' words, Matthew chapter 7. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and your name perform many miracles, do all these things? And I will tell them, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Ladies and gentlemen, it is possible to do all kinds of things in the church, even be called a pastor and not know Christ. People point to active ministry, a guilty conscience, another foundation. I feel bad when I sin, so I must be a Christian. When the reality is all kinds of people feel bad when they do wrong. We have a whole system of pop psychology filled with man-made ways to cover over our guilt. And we've even created a supposedly Christian version of it when it's nothing more than self-help wrapped in spiritual terms. We look for assurance and positive thinking. Well, I think I'm a Christian. But think about it. If that was a foundation for assurance, then no one could ever be deceived. It's kind of the whole point of deception. Think about millions of people in cults who claim that they are Christians when the Bible clearly teaches they are not. We want to know what God thinks, not what we think. And here's one more. False foundation for assurance. A past decision. So I hear people say, I know I'm a Christian because I remember when I signed a card, prayed a prayer, said these words, went forward, I remember right where I was when I did that. Now I want to be really, really careful here because many people can, many true Christians can remember the exact moment when they placed their faith in Christ and their heart and life was changed forever. But at the same time, there are many people who signed a card, prayed a prayer, said some words, walked an aisle, joined a church, but today and for years have not been walking with God and have no desire to walk with God. They do not have eternal life. Please hear this. The Bible does not say, you won't find one verse in 1 John that says, as long as you said some words or signed a card or joined a church one time, you can know you have eternal life. That's not in the Bible. Now again, that doesn't mean there wasn't a point in the past when you truly began a relationship with God through faith in Jesus. But when, follow this, when John writes this letter to help people know they have eternal life, he doesn't say, look back to the past. He says, look to the present. And this is key. Please pay attention here. There are like landmines everywhere in what we're talking about today. So John is not addressing how you become a Christian as much as he is addressing how you know you're a Christian. And those are two very different things. How do, how do you become a Christian? What does the Bible teach about that? Romans 10, 9, you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Mark 1, 15, repent and believe the gospel. So if you are visiting with us today, exploring Christianity, this is how you become a Christian. You realize that God is good and holy and we, you and I, we've all sinned against God. We've turned from his ways to our ways. Looks different in all of our lives, but we are separated from God as a result and we deserve his judgment forever. But you also realize that God loves us so much that he came to us in the person of Jesus. And Jesus lived the life that we could never live without sin. Then though he had no sin to pay a price for, he chose to die on a cross for our sin. He paid the price for your sin, for my sin. 
He died on a cross and then he rose from the dead in victory over sin so that anyone, anywhere who repents and believes, turns from sin, says, God, I know I'm a sinner. I'm turning from my sin to myself and I'm trusting in Jesus to save me from my sin as Lord of my life. When you do that, you are reconciled to God, forgiven of your sin, restored to relationship with him forever. That is how you become a Christian according to the Bible. Which point then the Bible teaches Here's how you know you're a Christian. So here's how you know that Jesus is the Savior and Lord of your life. Here are the true foundations for assurance. So see the difference there. So what I want to show you is four foundations for assurance in 1 John 1 and 2. Even that though, I want to be careful. I want to be careful not even to in any way imply. So here's the boxes you need to check off in order to become a Christian. No, please hear this. In order to become a Christian, you repent and believe what we just said. And then, these are the questions that the Bible gives us to ask so we might examine our hearts and know that we're not deceived. How can we know that repentance and belief are true, are realities in our lives? How can we know that we're not deceived? How do we know that we have eternal life? Ask four questions. One, are you trusting in Jesus alone? as the Son of God and Savior of your sin. I just encourage you, just personalize this. Writing these things to you, John says, I'm preaching these things today, so you may know you have eternal life. How do you know? Ask these questions. One, are you trusting in Jesus alone as the Son of God and Savior of your sin? That's, that's what John says in 1 John 5, 13, this, the purpose statement of this book, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. That's how you know, by believing in him. We saw this last week. You look in 1 John chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. We say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness. We lie and do not practice the truth. In other words, we're deceived. And he continues, but if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. You get down to verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Chapter 2, verse 2. We looked at it last week. Jesus is the propitiation or sacrifice for our sins. So ask the question, are you trusting in Jesus right now as the Son of God, God in the flesh, who came to offer his life as a sacrifice for your sin? And if not, you do not have a lot of reason for assurance that you have eternal life. Just put this together with some of the false foundations for assurance. There are many Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses right now who are great, moral, loving, kind, good people who are devoted to their faith and think, would say they're Christians, yet they are explicitly denying that Jesus is uniquely God in the flesh. As a result, they are deceived. Similarly, there are people today who made past decisions, walked an aisle, prayed a prayer, said some words. But if you were to ask them today, are you trusting in Jesus as the Son of God and the Savior of your sin? They would say, absolutely not. And if they aren't trusting in Jesus as the Savior of their sin, they don't have much reason for assurance of eternal life. They're not believing in the one who is able to give eternal life. Which caused you to wonder, well, what, what happened years ago when this or that? And we'll dive into that more next week when we see these who have falsely professed Christ. But the reality is, trusting in Jesus is necessary for eternal life. One more example. There are church members 
who believe in Jesus and at the same time believe that their church attendance and all they do for Jesus will earn their way to heaven. And as long as you believe that, you will have little assurance of your salvation. I, I think about many Catholic friends I have. This is our conversations all the time revolve around because the Catholic Church officially teaches that we are saved from our sin, not by faith alone, but by faith plus works. Which is why many, my Catholic friends, when we talk, and I asked, do you know you have eternal life in heaven? They say, I hope so. I believe in Jesus and I hope my good works will get me there. But good works do not save us from sin. Jesus alone can save us from sin. This is Ephesians 2.8. By grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works. Assurance comes not from trusting in your works, but by trusting in Jesus alone as Savior of our sins. Not Jesus plus anything. Just Jesus. Period. So are you trusting in Jesus alone as the Son of God and Savior of your sin? That's the first question. Now, that doesn't mean that our, does that mean then that our, our works, our lives don't matter at all? No. That's why Ephesians 2.10, right after saying we're saved by grace, says we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. works. So that leads right into the second question we ask when looking for assurance of eternal life. So one, are you trusting in Jesus alone as the Son of God and Savior of your sin? Then two, are you obeying Jesus alone as the Lord of your life? Are you obeying Jesus alone as Lord of your life? Just ask that question. Examine your heart right now. Hear the word of God. First John 2 verse 3. Hear God's word. This is not me speaking. This is God saying, By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfective. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Those verses could not be any more clear or more critical. So first, realize this is not saying that we need to obey God in order to be saved from our sin. That would contradict everything we've already seen in the Bible. We see it over and over again in the Bible. We are saved from our sin by trusting in Jesus alone as Son of God and our Savior. And then, this is how we know that trust is real. We do what Jesus says. If we trust him, then we follow him. We keep his commandments. We obey his word. We walk in his way. Why? So that we can be saved? No. We keep his commandments because we have been saved. This is how we know we have been saved by Jesus. We live like Jesus. We trust him, so we obey him as the Lord of our lives. Obeying Jesus is not a condition for knowing Jesus. Obeying Jesus is a sign that we know Jesus. Which makes sense, doesn't it? Like, what is a Christian? Just go common sense here. A Christian is a follower of Christ. So are you following Christ? And if the answer to that question is no, then it really doesn't make sense to call yourself a Christian. It's a sad commentary on Christianity in our day when so many people profess to be Christians, yet their lives so little to no fruit of following Christ beyond maybe church attendance, moral decency, but again, you can have, do those things and not be a Christian. 
question is, are you obeying Jesus alone as the Lord of your life? Now I want to be careful here. Much like I mentioned last week, the, the picture here is definitely not holy perfection. It's not that Christian never sins. Then if you do sin, then you should doubt your salvation. No. The whole point at the end of 1 John 1, beginning of 1 John 2, is that if, when you sin, you confess your sin. That's just it. For the Christian, when he or she sins, there is confession, repentance, there's sorrow over sin, there's a turning from sin, a desire for change, a working by God's grace to obey Jesus as the Lord of your life. That's the word here. It's a great word in the original language of the New Testament here. When it's talking about obeying, it means desiring obedience. Not you have to, it's you desire, you want to follow Jesus. You're working in your life to obey him because you trust him and his word and his ways. So when I talk to the couple who is living together outside of marriage and they say, we are Christians and we are living together outside of marriage, the reality is they are deceived. God has spoken clearly about this. So it's legitimate at that point to ask, okay, are they followers of Jesus? Because it sure looks like they're deliberately disobeying Jesus. But if on the other hand, when seeing this in God's word, they say, yeah, we're still going to live together anyway. That's going to show it's doubtful that they are followers of Jesus. And that may sound strong, but even as I say that, I realize I'm not using language as strong as the Bible is. The Bible says clearly in this situation, if you say you know him, but you don't keep his commandments, you don't even desire or want to work to keep his commandments, you're a liar. The truth is not in you. John does not say to that couple, well, as long as you said some words at a moment in the past, you're okay. So I ask you, the Bible asks you, are you obeying Jesus alone as the Lord of your life? Is the posture of your heart towards Jesus. I want to follow you. I trust that your word is better than my way, so I want to do whatever you want me to do. And I know I'm not sinless in that. I, I know I still sin, but I sure want to sin less and less and less. And I want to know you more and more and more. I want to obey you more and more and more. This is how you know you have eternal life. Are you obeying Jesus as the Lord of your life? Third question. Are you showing the love of God to others? Are you showing the love of God to others? This is where we pick up in chapter two, verse seven. Hear God's word. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away, the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. And in him, there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going. So to briefly explain what the Bible just said, the command to love others is obviously not new. It's been around from the beginning. But that command to love took on a whole new meaning when Jesus came. The light of the world left his throne in heaven to come to our darkness in love for us. In love, he laid down his life for us. And now, for all who have trusted in him as Savior and Lord, he lives in us, which means we love like Jesus loves. We lay down our lives in love for people around us. We selflessly serve, compassionately care for people around us and not 
just people like us, people unlike us. We love even our enemies. We provide for those in need among us. And anyone who says he or she is a follower of Jesus, but this kind of love is not evident in their lives, the Bible is saying they're not in the light. They're still in the darkness. John will say this in other ways in the chapters to come. Chapter 3, verse 14, we know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. This is how we know we have eternal life because we have a whole new love for people around us, specifically in the church. Three verses later, he says, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Again, that's not love others so that you can earn your way to eternal life. This is when Jesus, who is eternal life and love, is living in you, then his love will be expressed through you. I was talking with a student who is, yeah, at this point, not very interested in Christianity. And was telling me, my parents say they're Christians, and people think they're strong Christians, but I watch the way they treat each other at home. My dad clearly doesn't love my mom in the way he treats her. My mom doesn't love my dad with the way she talks about him, and I just don't get it. Is this what Christianity is about? And the answer is no, it's not. For those who are in Christ, again, not one of us is perfect. But remember, not holy perfection, but holy direction. There is a desire to love and a working to love as Christ's love that is evident in the true Christian's life. It's evident in their relationships. The Bible says the same thing in the book of James. When professing Christians in the church there are ignoring the poor. And James says, what good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? So suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. One of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs. What good is that? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. It's dead. Deceived. In other words, people who claim to be Christians, to be followers of Christ, yet ignore the poor right around them? Even in the church, they're deceived and they need to ask if they're really Christians. And it's not that they need to start loving in order to become Christians. It's that they need to repent and believe in Jesus. Ask God to give them a new heart that loves like Jesus loves. Which leads right in the last question. So the fourth foundation for assurance in these verses. Not just are you showing the love of God to others, but are you experiencing the love of God for you? Are you experiencing love for God, love of God for you? And this is where, uh, as I was studying this text this week, just all the light bulbs just went on. So I want you to follow this. So what John does, starting in verse 12, is he starts to encourage the true Christians, those who were trusting in Christ and obeying Christ. Again, not perfectly, but working to obey Christ by the grace of God in them, loving others. And he says, verse 12, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who's from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you've overcome the evil one. Now, keep in mind that when John writes to little children here, he's referring to all the followers of Christ in the church in and around Ephesus, by extension to all of us. He's like a father to them us in the faith. He's calling them children of God. Then he writes to fathers and young men, not to be exclusively focused on males in the church, but as a picture of those who are older or younger, either physically or in the faith. We're not sure, entirely clear which, 
but his point is the same. And it's repetitive. He says the same thing multiple times. And notice how his encouragement to them is just totally based on God's love for them. He says, you, I'm writing to you, you've been forgiven of all your sins by God. And you know him who is from the beginning. You know God. And the word John uses for know there is to know by experience. Not just to know about God in your mind, but to know God in your heart, in your life. As we've already seen in 1 John, you have fellowship with God. And as a result of fellowship with God, his word is in your heart. You have his victory in your lives over sin and temptation amidst trial and suffering. You have overcome the evil one. So see the picture here of the true Christian, the man, woman, student who has been forgiven by the love of God and is now experiencing the love of God and intimate knowledge of God and fellowship with God on a daily basis in the world. This is eternal life, experiencing the love of God. This is the true Christian life, experiencing the love of God, which is why. So now here's the light bulbs. Make the connection here. So the next verse starts where we started today. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Because if anyone loves the world, then what? The love of the Father is not in him. So follow this. Again, picture the world as a system of thoughts, ideas, practices, pleasures that are set up against God and his word and his ways. And the Bible's saying clearly here, that system and the love of God cannot coexist. So love for the world and love for God cannot coexist. And he defines love for the world as the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. Notice the first two are desires for what we don't have. The third is pride in what we do have. So think the desire for material possessions, sexual pleasure, selfish pursuits, higher positions, greater luxuries, nicer comforts, in any ways that pull us away from God and his ways. At which point you might ask, wait, should I not desire a home? Do you have a house? Should I not desire a spouse? Should I not desire children? Love children? Love a spouse? Should I not desire friends? Should I not desire a job? Some rest? Some relaxation? Some fun? A healthy body? A variety of other good things in the world? Should I not desire these things? And the answer is, No, you shouldn't, unless those desires are driven first and foremost by a desire for God. Follow with me here, this is so key. Do you desire a spouse, for example, merely for selfish pleasure, or do you desire a spouse so that God might be glorified in the selfless love you might show that spouse? Do you desire marriage so that you might grow to love and enjoy God more with this husband or wife as you display the gospel for his glory in the world? Is that your desire for marriage? Because you desire God. Desire for a spouse is intended to be grounded in a desire for God. As is everything else, the Christian life is a life in love with God over anything and everything in this world. Which means now anything and everything in this world is simply an opportunity to know and show the love of God. And that changes the way you view your life. You're thinking, well, it sounds like God is just your life. That's right. You're a follower of Christ. He's your life. And everything in your life revolves around him. So now, it just changes everything. 
as a student or young single, so many of you are just praying for you this week. You're surrounded by so many temptations to worldliness that you wonder if it's even possible to love God in the middle of it. And it is. The ways of this world are passing away. I guarantee you that 30, 40 years from now, 30, 40 billion years from now, you will not regret living today with the love of God above all else. You will not regret living according to God's ways instead of the ways of this world. I guarantee you. Just change the way you view your life. It's totally different. And this goes against all the messages this world is sending, every single one of us. It's changed the way you life, marriage, parenting. So we're no longer parenting to raise children to be successful in all the ways of the world that are going to pass away. We're setting them up for destruction if that's where we're focused. No, we raise children to know and love God, and that changes everything. So sure, we'll raise them to get a job, but not because we're training them for a casual Comfortable Christians spin on the American dream because we're training them to love and glorify God by working hard at a job, to love and glorify God by providing for a family, to love and glorify God by spending their lives for the spread of his gospel in a world of urgent spiritual and physical need. When the love of the Father is in you, you see everything around you as an opportunity to love him more, to glorify him more. Now you approach every facet of your life. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 makes sense. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, you do it all for the glory of God. Because you're driven by love of God. I, I, this is my big concern when I hear those stats. It just seems to me like many professing Christians don't know that kind of experience of God's love. Many professing Christians love the things of the world so much because they know the love of God so little. So just follow it. Many of us are living like we believe the ways of this world are better than the ways of God. Being good at sports, better than church. Enjoying this momentary pleasure, better than obedience to intimacy with God. I, I just go on and on and on and on. Just look at our lives. And First John 2.15 is telling us that if we would just realize the greatness of God's love for us, when the love of the Father is in you, he will take away your love for the things of this world. He will sh- you'll see they're empty compared to him. You'll see that he's so much better. So that's the pastoral pleading, just to believe that God is better. The problem is, just to go back to where we started, so many of us, and just so you know, I include myself in this. So many of us, in so many different ways, are just right now tangled in a web of worldliness. And we wonder, how do we get out? We wonder, how, how do we love God and not the things in the world? At least I hope you're wondering this. If you're not, if you're at home with desire for the things of the world, that's far more alarming. But if in your heart you would say, you're hearing this word from God, you would say, I want to experience God's love like that in a way that frees me from love for the things of this world that I want to encourage you. This is what being the church is all about. As a pastor, as members of this church, we want to help one another love God, grow in our understanding of God's love for us in a way that radically changes our lives, our families, our future for our good, for his glory. That is a process over time, week by week as a church. But I would close today by saying that it starts right here. It starts by expressing this desire to God. It starts with you, with me, with us saying, God, I, God, we, you just say in your life, God, I want you. 
I want to love you. I don't want to love the things in this world. They're passing away. I want you, life in you. So help me. Help us. As you say this to God, then I just want to encourage you with everything else we've seen in 1 John today. Because you and I are going to fall short, but let's trust in Jesus alone as the Son of God, the Savior of our sin. Let's confess our sin to him. Know that we're cleansed by him. And then, by his grace, let's work to obey him alone as the Lord of our lives, the Lord of your life. Let's open up his word, see what it says about money, see what it says about sexuality, see what it says about anger and lust and marriage and parenting. Let's not buy into everything this world is selling. Let's dive into this word and say, so on our own, together, let's dive into this word and let's prioritize it like it's life. Like it's life. Like more than anything else, this word is life. Let's ask God to give us that kind of life and his kind of love for those around us. Let's ask God to give us radical, sacrificial, selfless love for those in need around us. And all of that, let's experience in the process God's love for us. Knowing we're forgiven of our sins, we have fellowship with God, we know God, and we have overcome the evil one. Today, God's word is holding eternal life out to us, to you. And when I say that, like, please don't just think about heaven. Some of you this whole time have been thinking, I just wanna know if I'm going to heaven. Just tell me how I can make sure I'm gonna be there. Where's, where's the box? Just, I just wanna make sure I'm there. Ladies and gentlemen, heaven is not the goal. God is the goal. The question is not, do you want heaven? The question is, do you want God? Because if you don't want God, then you won't have heaven. It's the whole point. Eternal life is found in God. And it's not just in the future. It's right now. So do you want God right now? Eternal life is depending on answering that question. For all who do, then I exhort you, trust in Jesus alone as the Son of God and the Savior of your sins. Some, many of you have never done that. I urge you to do that today. Like that is the beginning of the Christian life. But it is not the end. You trust in Jesus and then keep trusting in Jesus as your Savior, as you obey Jesus as your Lord. You show his love to others by the power of his life in you. And in all of this, you experience God's love in your heart. For this is eternal life. And you will know. I just want to ask you those questions as you bow your heads here at other congregations. Are you trusting in Jesus alone as the Son of God and the Savior of your sin? Are you obeying, desiring to obey, working to obey? Jesus is the Lord of your life. Are you showing God's love to others and are you experiencing God's love in your life? Obviously, I don't know where everybody is right now, but I, I just want to encourage everybody, regardless of where you are, to go to Jesus. To say, help us. God, I pray that right now, even in this moment right now, some, maybe many people are just going to you and trusting you to save them from their sins. Others are saying, I want to be, I want to experience life like this. Lord, wean me off the ways of this world, the things of this world. I want you more than I want anything in this world. God, I pray that you would make that our prayer that you'd help us, help us in this way and make us a church that's helping one another in this way. Help us to help each other to
love you and experience your love for us and show your love to others in a way that makes the things and the ways of this world look empty as they are. Lord, guard us from deception, we pray. Help us to know that we have eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen. ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.